Oh, well, good evening, everyone. Um, I'm delighted to see um, lots of people here. Um, I was thinking it might be me, you know, and a few students I'd paid and uh, 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 promised them a drink in the bar afterwards. So um, it's delightful to uh, have the opportunity to, uh, certainly for me, to have the opportunity to talk about a, a subject that I'm very interested in, which is this uh, correspondence between um, someone called um, Sigmund Freud, uh, that you may possibly have heard of, Freud, um, and somebody who I think you probably, very few of you will have heard of at all, um, the Reverend Oscar Pfister, um, spelled P-F-I-S-T-E-R, um, but, and um, Pfister was a Swiss Protestant minister of religion, and some of the terms that he was called by, sometimes he was called Pastor Pfister, or sometimes he was called Pfarrer Pfister. Um, and uh, he, as well as being a minister of religion, was a pioneering um, educationalist. And what we're going to look at this evening is their 30-year correspondence, which was testimony to um, a lifelong friendship between Freud and Pfister, which was published in uh, 1963 um, in this book. Uh, and this was the first uh, complete series of letters from Freud to uh, a single individual. And what I want to do with you tonight is to tell you the story of this friendship told through their letters, and really let the letters and comments speak for themselves. So some of this will be my introduction, but some of it will, will be me reading some of these letters to you, and um, uh, this will take 30-odd minutes or so, and then we've got an opportunity at the end of that uh, for you to ask any questions um, that you would like. Um, I can't guarantee I'll answer them, but um, you can ask uh, the questions that you, you want. And uh, so... What, what I hope that we'll get from tonight is really a new perspective um, on Freud, because when people hear the word Freud, nobody comes with a neutral uh, mind. There isn't such a thing as a blank screen version of Freud. Um, everybody has their own opinions and formed in, in lots of very different ways. And what I hope tonight is just a glimpse into this correspondence will give us some, some new insights into Freud, uh, Freud the person. And uh, what is surprising is that these letters were published at all, given the general antipathy in psychoanalysis to anything religious. And the editor was one of Freud's son, Ernst Freud, and uh, he even refused to attend his son, Clement Freud's wedding, because it took place in an Anglican church. Um, and although not an observant Jew himself, um, very much in the tradition of his, his father. This was just a step too far uh, for Ernst Freud. And Anna Freud was equally dismissive of religion. And there's three factors, I believe, that influenced the decision to publish. The first, really, was that Pfister was a friend of the Freud family, especially the children. And uh, here's how Anna Freud uh, recalls him. Uh, she writes, uh, this is, what I'm going to read is a slightly longer version of this. In the totally non-religious Freud household, Pfister, in his clerical garb and with the manners and behaviours of a pastor, was like a visitor from another planet. In him there was nothing of the almost passionately impatient enthusiasm for science, which caused other pioneers of analysis to regard time spent at the family table only as an unwelcome interruption of their theoretical and clinical discussions. Contrary, um, on... Uh, on the contrary, his human warmth and enthusiasm, his capacity for taking a lively interest in the minor events of the day, enchanted the children of the household 
and made him at all times the most welcome guest, a uniquely human figure in his way. To them, as Freud remarked, he was not a holy man, but a kind of Pied Piper of Hamelin, who had only to play on his pipe to gather a whole host of willing young followers behind him. See, Freud's pattern very much was that he would, uh, visitors would come from all over Europe and be invited to spend um, uh, the evening, uh, the Saturday, sometimes Sunday lunch uh, with Freud and, and the family. And as I say, Fister came along. And Fister was able to make friends with all the children. Um, with Sophie, uh, one of Freud's daughters who died in 1923, um, he was very interested in her family of lizards. Um, with uh, Martin, uh, Freud, who was frightened of heights, um, but liked open air and getting into the mountains. Uh, Fister, as a Swiss uh, mountaineering, was one of his hobbies. Um, he promised to take Martin mountaineering. And so uh, all the children had different experiences of him, but what they realized very quickly was that he was as interested in them as he was in their father, and that was a very new um, experience. And so I think it had long-term um, implications. Um, the second reason why this, these letters got published was that Pfister left a small sum of money um, for their publication, and uh, that, that also helped. The third reason, I think, is the quality of the letters themselves. But to interpret the letters and the friendship, we need a bit more information about Pfister uh, himself. Uh, Pfister uh, studied theology, philosophy, psychology, pedagogy, and the history of religions at Baal and Zurich universities from 1891 to 1895. And then in 1896, he attended lectures in psychiatry in Berlin, and, then he completed, and there he completed his doctorate in theology in 1898. But Pfister, uh, multi-talented academically, moved away from an academic career to follow his vocation to meet the pastoral needs of his people through service as a minister of religion. Then in 1902, um, he moved to the prestigious and prominent um, uh, Predigerkirch, literally Preacher's Church, in Zurich uh, itself. And that's, uh, that's a picture. There's a picture of Fister on the left. The right, uh, to the right is the spire of the church, and then the bottom left, again, in between the buildings. And then that's a picture of the interior um, of the church um, itself. And uh, the church was a very prominent church in Zurich. This tower, this neo-Gothic tower was built in, in 1900, so just before Pfister arrived. So it was very much at the, 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 the pinnacle, it was very much where people flocked to, uh, uh, to hear somebody um, who had that ability to relate to people um, in his sermons, which was very different from a lot of the kinds of preaching that predominated in uh, Germany, in Austria, um, around that time. And so this church was very much at the centre, and the church's purpose was to dissolve itself into society, a quote, transforming it into a culture dominated by the values of humanity, personality, and mutual love. And after a short time, Pfister was given tenure in his, this church, a fact that was to become very significant because later on, as psychoanalytic ideas uh, were challenged by, by the wider church, um, they couldn't sack him. And in 1912, the newspapers in Zurich vilified Freud and many of his supporters because of his, quote, disgusting ideas that children are sexual. 
Now, of course, this is a clear distortion of Freud's ideas of psychosexual development. Um, and it was spiced up by the fact that Pfister was also involved in a possible divorce, which, again, at that time was absolutely scandalous that a minister of religion um, would possibly um, divorce. He didn't actually divorce um, um, in the end. But uh, again, it was uh, fortunate for Pfister that he had this tenure in this church, and uh, he remained in this church um, until his retirement in the, in the mid-1930s. Uh, so it was a long, long pastorate, a long time to shape this community of people. And Pfister found that, quote, theology, whether historical, systematic, or practical, failed to meet my burning need to fill men with Christian love and make them instruments of divine love. Pfister turned his academic abilities to writing, and in 1905 saw the first of his 30 publications with the snappy title, The Misery of Our Scientific Theology, um, and there were more to come. But Pfister was motivated to recast theology in the light of God's love, based, quote, upon the unity of love through faith and faith through love, which was the essence of the teaching of Jesus and of which his life was the pattern. Pfister went on to say, all the greater was my anxiety to use my pastorate to which I was zealously devoted as a basis for finding a new way to understand the phenomena of faith. Throughout, I was aware that essentially I was practicing the psychiatry employed with so much genius by Jesus. So Pfister became concerned about the lack of psychological insight found in theology and his first duty he saw as the cure of souls and the healing of spiritual misery. And therefore, when he came across Freud's ideas, his writings, they were a revelation. He says, um, I found myself unable to agree with its philosophy and its at first materialistic and later agnostic background. But I felt powerfully attracted by many of its scientific aspects. I tried forthwith to apply these discoveries in my mystery. So his discovery of the written Freud in about 1905 led him to join the Freud Society set up by Carl Jung in Zurich in 1907. And Peter Gay, who's an important historian of psychoanalysis, describes the impact of Freud on Pfister. Here was no interminable speculation about the metaphysics of the soul, no experimenting with minute trifles while the great problems of life remained untouched. Freud had devised, quote, a soul microscope microscope which gave insight into the origins of the mental functions and their development. So encouraged by this group and Jung, Pfister took the initiative in contacting Freud by sending him um, another snappy paper called Hallucinations and Suicide of Schoolboys. And uh, Pfister began publishing more articles in educational, pedagogic and theological journals since 1905. But following his acceptance of psychoanalytic ideas, the focus changed. So when Jung mentioned Pfister's name to Freud, saying, Pastor Pfister, a clever man and a friend of mine, has started a big propaganda campaign for your ideas, Freud was able to reply, your courageous friend has sent me a paper for which I shall thank him at length. It's really too nice of him, a Protestant clergyman though rather upsetting to see psychoanalysis enlisted in the fight against sin. Freud replied the following day, sorry, Freud replied to Pfister the following day, which began their 30-year correspondence. 
And this is an extract from their first letter. He says, I must also express my satisfaction that our psychiatric work has been taken up by a minister of religion who has access to the minds of so many young and healthy um, individuals. Now, again, to put that in context, a great deal of Freud's writing had been based on his observation and his work with a certain strata of uh, neurotic women in Vienna in the late 1800s. So the idea that was emerging that psychoanalysis could be formative and developmental and part of a healthy development for children and young people was really quite an exciting idea for Freud. And Freud too, as we know, was very uh, attracted to Jung as, as he called him, the crown prince of psychoanalysis to to take um, psychoanalysis beyond what Freud called the sort of limitations of its Jewish confines. He wanted to see, the, the, he saw Zurich and Switzerland in some ways as, as an opportunity to move beyond um, um, a certain background in a certain group. Um, what you'll discover is that all these early psychoanalysts used to write to each other practically every day. And, we'd, and, and, and you get fascinating insights by the, the amount of gossip and the um, amount of bitchiness and the uh, amount of character assassination that sort of goes on um, uh, between them. Uh, so Jung replies the day after, Fister is a splendid fellow, a neurotic himself, of course, though not a severe one. Nothing scares him, a redoubtable champion of our cause with a powerful intelligence. Oddly enough, I find this mixture of medicine and theology to my liking. You will be shortly receiving another longish paper from him. He is feverishly busy. <clears throat> Fister sent Freud the paper, and again by the 25th of January, again 1909, Freud replied to Jung, commenting that it was very intelligent and full of substance. He says, think, think of it, me and the Protestant Monthly. Fister had written an article about Freud in um, a journal in Switzerland called the Protestant Monthly. And Freud, <laughs> she said, he said, Freud said, but it's all right with me. In some respects, a psychoanalyst who is also a clergyman works under better conditions. And besides, I presume, he will not be concerned with money. So, so again, we're beginning to see different aspects to, uh, to Freud and his, uh, his fun and his, his humor, his ironic use of humor in, in developing this, this relationship. Uh, one of the reasons why uh, we, we, there are so many letters is that Freud himself was, was one of the great letter writers. It's estimated that, that probably there's between 30 to 60,000 letters Freud wrote, and his pattern was that he would finish his clinical work about 10 o'clock in the evening, um, and he would write, uh, usually till about one o'clock in the morning, um, every day. He disliked um, having a letter, not replying to a letter, in, in more after, if it was more than a couple of days, um, you know, he, he really didn't like that um, at all. And so, partly, there's this huge energy, and this, this, this is a really very interesting aspect of Freud, that has been overlooked a great deal in terms of understanding who the, um, who the person was. Freud then went to, on to write to uh, Pfister uh, and to, it went on to say this. He said, you are in the fortunate position of being able to lead them, that is children and young people, to God and to bring about what, in this one respect, was the happy state of earlier times when religious faith stifled neurosis. 
Our public, no matter of what racial origin, is irreligious. We are generally thoroughly irreligious ourselves, and sublimation which we substitute for religion generally results in the seeking out of satisfaction. Our patients have to find in humanity what we are unable to promise them from above. Psychoanalysis is neither religious nor non-religious, but an impartial tool which both priest and layman can use in the service of the sufferer. I am very much struck by the fact that it never occurred to me how extraordinarily helpful the psychoanalytic method might be in pastoral work, but that is surely accounted for by the remoteness from me as a wicked pagan of the whole system of ideas. So Freud certainly um, is making himself known and making his ideas clear. And in one of Fister's few letters, um, Fister writes back, he said, the ethical difference between you, your, your outlook and mine is perhaps not so great as my calling might suggest. And then two days later, another letter from Freud. Um, Freud says, in the historical sense of which you speak, I too can call myself a Protestant. So there's this playful development of ideas. And uh, this is something that was picked up um, by Jung. Freud's letter to, next letter to Jung reveals something of the impact Fister had on Freud. And, and he's writing about Jung. Um, he says, you definitely lapse into the theological style in, rela in relating this experience. The same thing happened to me in a letter from Fister. I borrowed every conceivable metaphor. I couldn't help myself. Respect for theology had nailed me to this question. Quote, one way or another, the Jew will be burned. Now, this phrase is taken from Lessing's 1779 play called Nathan the Wise. Now, not having an encyclopedic knowledge of this, um, I did look it up, and I committed the ultimate cardinal sin of uh, using Wikipedia. And um, this is what Wikipedia sums it up as. Set in Jerusalem during the Third Crusade, it describes how the wise Jewish merchant Nathan the enlightened Sultan Saladin and the initially anonymous Templar bridged their gaps between Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. Its major themes are friendship, tolerance, relativism of God, a rejection of miracles, and a need for communication. It's amazing how a 1779 play can have such remarkable resonance and so many wise things to say to our society and nations today. Freud's conscious recall of this phrase through his encounter with Pfister does, I believe, reveal an aspect of Freud that, is rare, that has rarely been seen, namely, namely friendship, tolerance, a relativism of God or religion, a rejection of the miraculous and the mystical, and a need for personal and relational communication. Freud goes on to say to Jung again, he said, I'm still so unaccustomed to being on good terms with Protestant theologians. And Freud recognized that Fister's letters always had an effect on him. In some ways, what Fister did was he gave Freud the opportunity to both try out new ideas and to educate or instruct a disciple in Fister and to explore some of his own ideas about religion that he could not have done in any other context. So in, uh, again in 1909, uh, Freud is able to write this. He said, the general reliance of religious thinking are laid down in advance in the family. 
God is equivalent to the father, the Madonna is the mother, and the patient himself is no other than Christ. Now, the significance of this is that Freud never uses that, that comb- never refers to the family in this way again through, through the rest of his, his thinking. I've been through all 24 volumes of Freud's published works. And this, this metaphor, this idea, never occurs again outside these letters. But we can see here that Freud is trying out uh, uh, an idea. He's trying out something that he, he, didn't, certainly, he certainly didn't talk about um, anywhere else. So this frequent communication, usually by letter, but also in person, between Freud, Jung, and Pfister, was uh, an open exchange of confidences and adds insight into what was to become an increasingly complex relationship. Despite Pfister's ministerial status and work, Jung felt that Pfister lacked, quote, a certain mystical streak. But Jung still writes approvingly. Pfister, he is, all told, a very acceptable theologian with very admirable traits of character. Freud wrote to Ferenczi, um, another pioneering analyst based in Budapest, the, the day after his meeting with Pfister, saying, he is a charming fellow, flattered everyone to death, a warm-hearted dreamer, half-saviour, half-pied piper. We parted good friends. And on this visit, Pfister gave Freud um, a gift. Uh, and the gift here was a silver uh, model of the Matterhorn. And um, this is what uh, Freud wrote about this. He said, the Matterhorn now crowns the pile of unanswered letters on my desk. I propose to endow the Matterhorn with a third meaning. Uh, The early part of the letter gives them two other meanings which aren't relevant tonight. It reminds me of a remarkable man who came to see me one day, a true servant of God, a man in the very idea of whom I should have had, had difficulty in believing, and that he feels the need to do spiritual good to everyone he meets. You did good in this way, even to me. Now accept my very warm thanks, go on writing valiantly, and keep me informed about your struggles and successes. And Freud recalls this same meeting with Jung. We have all grown very fond of Pfister. He really is an acceptable priest, and he has even helped me by exerting a moderating influence on my father complex. We were like old friends in no time. He's a little fulsome in his enthusiasm, but there's nothing false or exaggerated in his warmth. Whether he's able to preserve his residue of faith for long strikes me as doubtful. He is only at the beginning of a far-reaching development. So when Freud received a cryptic comment from Ernest Jones, um, Ernest Jones was the pioneer, or he became the, the he developed psychoanalysis in Britain. Uh, he was um, quite a controversial figure. Um, he uh, ruled the British psychoanalytic world uh, with a rod of iron, um, and so he was quite again quite a, a formidable figure, as most of these psychoanalytic pioneers had to be. Um, and um, he said, well. Uh, Jones writes, what do you make of Pfarrer Pfister? What are we coming to? Question mark. Freud was quick to reply, quote, permit me to put you right as soon as possible about Pfister. I know him personally by a visit he paid me last month. 
He is perfectly in earnest, a scientific man and a very kind character, nay, a charming man, very modest too. Grant him all the rights due to one of our crew, and not the worst man as far as I can see. So this is, this is all happening in 1909. So there's, there's a sort of intensity about this exchange and these, these, these ideas. And as, as we'll see later, Freud's ideas at this stage in relationship to religion were still experimental. They were still being formed. They were still being shaped by this relationship. It was, of course, to change later. And Freud was preparing for his visit to Jung with America, uh, a trip which was to have many consequences, including a small but irrevocable parting of ways. But on Freud's return, he changes the address he used for Pfister from Dr. Pfister to Dear Man of God. And the thing about this is that while Freud at times can be waspish and critical and bitchy and gossipy, uh, there are times when he says, he says this with a clarity and he means it. Um, you know, one of the things that he liked in Pfister was the fact that Pfister said what he meant. And he meant it even if he felt it was too fulsome in its praise. And so he writes, Dear man of God, a letter from you is one of the best possible things that could be waiting for me on one's return. But do not believe, do not believe that I believe everything or even a large part of the delightful things you say to me and about me. I do believe them of you, but not of me. I do not deny that it does me good to hear that sort of thing. But after a while, I recall my own my self-knowledge and become a good deal more modest. What remains behind is the belief that you honestly mean what you say and the pleasure given by your kind and enthusiastic nature. What I should like would be to win over more people such as yourself. And then later Freud confesses um, uh, a secret. He says, in spite of all the acceptance of fate, which is appropriate to an honest man, I have one quite secret prayer, that I may be spared any wasting away and crippling of my ability to work because of physical deterioration. And in some ways, those words are quite prophetic. Because Freud, um, you could say, was addicted to smoking cigars. The figures vary, um, but um, he smoked between 10 to 20 cigars a day. Um, and uh, unsurprisingly developed what was called rich man's cancer, uh, which was cancer of the throat and the jaw um, in the 1920s. It was possibly there before, but it, it wasn't picked up early, and, but it was certainly diagnosed, and had, you think he had his first of 12 operations um, in 1923. And if you've ever seen some of the pictures of Freud in later life, you'll see a somewhat stern figure um, and the reason for that is because he'd had the whole roof of his mouth uh, taken away, and he, he had this prosthesis put in to give him the, uh, uh, about to give him a roof of his mouth, and therefore he, he found it more difficult to speak um, at that point, and um, uh, it certainly did less of that, and did far more writing at that point. But you know, had frequent operations and was in, in great pain. And even while recovering from operations, um, he got someone to make a wooden peg that he could insert in, in between his teeth to open his jaw just wide enough for what? A cigar. And so he continued, despite all these operations, he continued to uh, smoke. 
And so it is fascinating that Freud's secret prayer to the fates, as opposed to God, was that he would, be avoid, uh, he would avoid this. And, and Pfister repeated this letter in his, in his letter to uh, Freud's widow, Martha, um, in 1939 on Freud's death. You know, he says, I, I recall, this is something, sadly, um, this, was not, this prayer was, of Freud's was not one um, that was um, answered. Although having said that, Freud refused to take any pain medication, which was morphine, uh, because he wanted to keep a clear mind as long as possible and continue um, his work. Uh, and uh, so Freud confesses a, a, a concern, and he also says, and this is in uh, 1911, um, he said, and I'm fighting the, finding the psychogenesis of religion very hard going. Um, so religion wasn't something he, he took to uh, and found difficult in that. And in some unpublished extracts from edited letters dated from 1912, Pfister confesses his own secret, that he'd fallen in love with another woman and wished to divorce his wife. Now, we know of this event because of Freud's letters to Jung and Ferenczi, but Pfister, who in the end didn't get divorced, later in the 1920s, asked Freud to destroy the correspondence from this time. And this is what Freud writes in 1927. Uh, Freud, uh, Pfister's wife had died that year and um, he, he remarried. And so part of that process was that he wanted to cover over some of the things from the past. So he says, Dear Dr. Pfister, I have finished the hangman's job you asked me to do via Frau H. Frau H is a very interesting figure that um, I haven't got time to go into tonight, but um, was a very intriguing figure who was, in fact, the only client who a patient that was seen by Freud, Jung, and Pfister. She had them, all three of them, as therapists. And she seemed to, uh, this, is, this has only come to light fairly recently, because it, in each of, the, each of the writers use a different name. She's Frau H here, she's Frau C in other, other work. And um, it's uh, very interesting, and it, it's, if I ever have the time, that's something I'd like to uh, follow up um, much uh, more, because it looks like none of them were able to um, help her. Um, and, um, uh, but she became friends of all of them, and, and you know, seemed to carry on seeing them in a kind of more social sense in this you know, journey around uh, between Vienna and uh, Zurich, because it's Frau H in 1927 that communicated this, uh, this to Freud. He said, I've done what you asked me to do, but did not do so gladly. I regretted the letters, which I read again for the first time after so many years. I pictured you in my mind as you were then, with all your winning characteristics, your enthusiasm, your exuberant gratitude, your courageous integrity, the way you blossomed forth after your first contact with analysis, as well as your blessed confidence in people who were so soon to disappoint you. Well, that's code for Jung. Um, and although you were also at that time in danger of committing stupidities, um, and since then fate has dealt much more kindly with you, he was getting married, I could not help feeling regrets that that battle passed you by, and perhaps it was not just my fanaticism or the spectator's desire for sensation that made me feel like that. Friendship also perhaps had something to do with it. I have just reread your letter today in which you wrote to me, do not talk to me of your age, you are the youngest of us all. Would you still write that today? So this is 1927, Freud's probably on operation, jaw operation number six, and, and is certainly feeling um, his age uh, at that point. And so 
What then happened were three, well, two particular uh, events, really. The first was the acrimony split between Freud and Jung. What began as a theoretical difference in November 1911 with the publication of Jung's book, Symbols of Transformation, grew, and despite an attempt at reconciliation, the parting of the ways kept parting. In December 1912, Freud writes to Pfister, naturally, I am very pleased at your opposition to Jung's innovations, but do not expect me to write anything against him. Well, in fact, Freud, Freud did, Pfister didn't have to write anything against Jung, because if you read the Freud-Jung correspondence around this time, you will see that it becomes extremely acrimonious. Uh, so Freud didn't need anyone else to, to uh, stop him expressing his opinion directly to Jung. He said, he will, he, he will receive a great deal of criticism from most of the leading analysts, so you will not be isolated in this purely internal and objective battle. I'm not quite sure of the accuracy of that last phrase. He says, do not have too much confidence in a lasting personal agreement between me and Jung. He demands too much of me, and I am retreating from my over overestimation of him. The second was the impact of the war and just the inability to communicate. There are no letters between 1913 and 1918. Um, there might have been some letters, there might have been, uh, but, but, but certainly none have survived as far as we know. And for Freud, it was a time of um, great anxiety. Anxiety about his finances and his future. If you had all these rich um, patients coming to you from uh, America and around Europe and, and Britain, you know, it, was, it was quite, you know, quite the done thing to decide that you want to do psychoanalysis. You think, I'm going to go and see Professor Freud, and so I'll decamp to Vienna for three to six months, and um, I'll have uh, a personal analysis. Uh, and sometimes Freud would see people uh, two, three times uh, a week. Uh, although there were lots of patients that he saw on a weekly basis, but quite often he did sort of truncated analysis for people, um, and uh, so, he, so he lost a huge source of income, um, and uh, there was concern uh, around the war itself, and he was also concerned that his son was wounded and a prisoner of war in uh, and, and Italy, and Freud was also concerned about his uh, family uh, health. So... In 1919, age 63, Freud writes that he hopes that he and Pfister can recover what has been wasted over the last five years. And in reviewing one of Pfister's papers from 1918, Freud is critical that Pfister challenges his sexual ethics and writes to another colleague that Pfister had been infected by his proximity to Jung. Much later in 1922, Pfister writes, uh, writes to Freud uh, this he says, I'm taking the liberty of making just one short observation about the book, um, uh, which was called Love in Children and Its Aberrations. Um, I'm sending you today. It represents an advance insofar that I have finally overcome a great many confusions to which I had succumbed because of Jung and Adler. So to my great pleasure, I can say without doubt or reservation that I have now seen the correctness of your views even in the areas where for a long time I had no experience of my own. In matters of ethics, religion, and philosophy, there remains differences between us which neither you nor I regard um, as a gulf. So that um, was Pfister saying that um, 
he, he had changed in that respect. But when you, when you read the letters, while they regained their friendship, something of the dynamic energy around the religious debate had shifted. It's as if Freud is much more settled in his views and uses Fister less as a sounding board. It's as if Freud is preparing himself to go into Fister's territory more than simply um, accepting Fister's praise. Uh, and so what I'm going to focus now as we're moving towards the end of my time with you, uh, conversation with you, rabbiting on with you, is simply um, a lots of correspondence that was around a book that Freud wrote called The Future uh, of an Illusion, which uh, was from 1927. So in 1927, uh, Freud, first of all, just writes to Pfister because he was celebrating. He said, Pfister, he said, I know that your jubilee in the church is imminent. Allow me, though prematurely, to be one of those that congratulate you. So there is that warmth there, there is that friendship there, there is that thinking of Fister in Fister's world, in Fister's terms, that he um, expresses. But um, six months later, he added another letter. He says, in the next few weeks, a pamphlet of mine, called The Future of an Illusion, will be appearing, which has a great deal to do with you. I have been wanting to write it for a long time and postponed it out of regard for you, but the impulse became too strong. The subject matter, as you will easily guess, is my completely negative attitude to religion in any form and however attenuated. And though there can be nothing new to you in this, I feared and still fear that such a public profession of my attitude will be painful to you. When you have read it, you must let me know what measure of toleration and understanding you, you are able to preserve for the hopeless pagan. All was yours, cordially devoted, Freud. And Fester writes back straight away, and he says, as for your anti-religious pamphlet, there is nothing new to me in your rejection of religion. I look forward to it with pleasurable anticipation. A powerful-minded opponent of religion is certainly of more service to it than a thousand useless supporters. In music, philosophy, and religion, I go different ways from you. I've been unable to imagine that a public profession of what you believe could be painful to me. I have always believed that every man should state his honest opinion aloud and plainly. You have always been tolerant towards me, and am I to be intolerant of your atheism? If I frankly air my difference from you, you will certainly not take it amiss. Meanwhile, my attitude is one of eager um, curiosity. And so, again, Freud uh, replied. He said, such is your magnanimity that I expected no other answer to my declaration of war. The prospect of your making a public stand against my pamphlet gives me positive pleasure. It will be refreshing in the discordant critical chorus for which I am prepared. We know that by different routes, we aspire to the same objectives for poor humanity. You, as a minister of religion, naturally have the right to call on all the reinforcements at your command. While we as analysts must be more reserved and must lay the chief accent on the effort to make the patient independent, which often works out to the disadvantage of the therapy. Apart from that, I am not so far from your point of view as you think. 
And this is just, these are just some extracts of this very detailed correspondence between Freud and Pfister. And in the format of Freud's The Future of an Illusion, he addresses an unnamed person in dialogue. And the person that Freud had in mind was Pfister. Pfister's reply, published in German in 1928, was uh, very wittily entitled The Illusion of a Future. Uh, which was only made available to the psychoanalytic world in 1993 when it was translated from German and then published in the International Journal of Psychoanalysis. Fister rehearsed some of his later ideas in a philosophical critique um, of Freud. And uh, in, in some ways, it's a very um, uh, interesting uh, critique and a very penetrating critique um, where he says... Your substitute for religion is basically the idea of the 18th century enlightenment in proud modern guise. I must confess that with all my pleasure in the advance of science and technique, I do not believe in the adequacy and sufficiency of that solution of the problem of life. It is very doubtful whether, taking everything into account, scientific progress can make men happier or better. And I'd like um, um, all um, the academics to um, listen at this point. Um, according to these statistics, um, there are more criminals among scholars than in the intellectual middle classes, and the hopes that were set out for the universal education has turned out to be um, illusory. Uh, and uh, I could say much uh, more about that, but, but Fister's point very clearly is you're saying nothing new, and what you're putting your faith in, science, will fail. It will be an illusion. Again, that was a quite a perceptive critique at that time in the late 1920s. Um, it pre certainly predates some postmodern thinking in relationship to the adequacy of science as a, as a meta-narrative or um, a totalizing paradigm. And uh, one, one of his other critiques was simply that Freud's, all of Freud's thinking in relationship to religion was coming from a pathological perspective. Because in some ways, the only actual religious person that, Fist, that Freud knew was Pfister. And in some ways, he mediated uh, Pfister's desire to see uh, the loving and the good and the religious and the spiritual in Freud. Uh, you know, one of his, Freud said it often enough, you know, he was perhaps a, an optimist in many respects. And you can see him glossing over some of Freud's um, other weaknesses in relationship to that. So Fister was saying, if in fact you have met, you were to meet religious people, the religious people that I, that I meet with and that I work with, you would see a very different understanding of religion. And while your future of the illusion is an appropriate critique, critique of pathological religion, it's not a critique of positive and enhancing and loving uh, religion. And so this carried on uh, in terms of some of the things that they, uh, they said to one another. Um, and um, Freud, when I say retracted um, a little, what he went on to say is, let me be very clear at this point that the views expressed in my book form no part of analytic theory. They're my personal views, but there are certainly many excellent analysts who share them. The practice of analysis necessarily does not necessarily lead to the abandonment of religion. The analyst cannot set himself up in the analyzan's mind as a substitute for God and providence. 
but must leave it to the analysand, either to overcome it after the explanation has been given to him, or satisfy it in a, in a religious or any other sublimated fashion. And then there's a footnote where Freud says, he said, I promptly devoured your future of an illusion and enjoyed it. Starting from quite different standpoints, one comes to the identical conclusion, but your argument is not only particularly elegant, it, it, is of course, it, it does, of course, get to the heart of the matter. And so uh, the, then he then points out that they do agree that Freud had a more pessimistic view of civilization and Freud... So Fister had a more optimistic view of civilization and Freud had a somewhat pessimistic view. And so this theoretical dialogue continues at times competitive, frank, personal, and moving. And it's one that they continued over the, uh, the, the next uh, couple of years. Where, the, again, you know, Freud says, our, our differences de derive briefly, chiefly from the fact that you grew up in the proximity of pathological forms of religion and regard them as religion. While well, I have had the good fortune of being able to turn to a free form of religion, which you seem to regard as emptying Christianity of its content, which I regard as the core and substance of um, evangelism. And so they continued um, in, this, uh, in this, this vein, where, where there's a respect, a mutuality, a dialogue, and engagement. And in Freud writes uh, another letter to Pfister, and, and then at the end remembers that Pfister had been unwell, and he says, well, I'm, I am, uh, he, said, he said, enough of that. He said, I want to um, just say to you at the end that I wish you a speedy recovery and resurrection. <laughs> so again, there's always this, this, this knowledge that Freud uses uh, that to develop um, and engage with Pfister in uh, this uh, very profound um, dialogue. Um, and... Uh, the other part of the debate was around lay analysis and whether or not priests could uh, play a role in that. And uh, Freud has some views um, about that. He said, I do not know if I've detected a secret link between lay analysis and illusion. In the former, I wish to protect analysis from the doctors and in the latter from the priests. I should like to hand it over to a profession which does not yet exist, a profession of lay curers of souls who need not be doctors and should not be priests. Um, and Pfister replies and says, well, um, actually, if you've read The Good Samaritan recently, um, you will find that The Good Samaritan preached no sermons and, in fact, enabled to accept people as they were, whatever their background. And that was Pfister's attitude towards psychoanalysis and religion. You didn't have to be an analyst. You didn't have to be a priest but you did have to have that compassion for people. So now Freud, now an old man, enduring cancer of the jaw, beleaguered in Vienna, was fearful for the future. And in his last minute escape to England, it meant he lived his last years here with the knowledge that his immediate family was safe, although some of his, some of his extended family uh, did go to the gas chambers. Uh, and they were safe and they could begin to live for themselves. And Freud died. And Pfister writes to Martha on her husband's death. And in an unpublished reply, uh, and a yet unpublished reply, on Martha's behalf, Martin, the son, acknowledges the warmth that Pfister always gave to the whole family and said, you know, in everything, 
you were the, the man of God that you were, um, and you disagreed with my father, and you were great friends, both of Freud and the whole family, for which we thank you. Both men left huge legacies. Pfister trained other psychoanalysts in Switzerland and Scandinavia. Uh, he was involved in the Swiss Psychotic Society. In the 1930s, he developed a form of art therapy. He produced his long-cherished theological views um, after he retired in a book called Christianity and Fear. Though in many respects, the theological world had changed partly through the work of Karl Barth, but also through the impact of liberal theology on the impact of two disastrous and awful world wars. And so what was left in their legacy? As I see it, it was a profound friendship. It was a profound faith in Pfister. It was a profound disbelief in Freud. It was a profound belief in a dialogue that could enrich each other, that irrevocably shaped both men. And I'd say it shaped both men for the good.